Ordinary men, extraordinary mission. We are looking at the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, those men who followed him for those three and a half years, and are examples to us of how to be followers of Jesus Christ, how to be Jesus Christ to our world. Now, no one likes to be last. Uh, Everybody strives to be first. Nobody wants to be last in a race. Nobody wants to be last in sales at work. Nobody wants to be last in anything they try. But whether we like it or not, somebody's always got to be last. There's always got to be the last person in whatever group we're talking about. So we have sayings like, you know, last but not least, or, you know, nice guys finish last, to try and make last, winding up last sound a little bit better. Uh, we are considering the last group of four disciples that we identified when we first began this series. Of the four disciples in this group, only one is well known, and that's because he is the traitor, Judas Iscariot. The other three are virtually silent in the gospel. We know very little about them. Uh, very few words are spoken that are recorded by them. Uh, they seem to have the least intimate relationship with Jesus Christ uh, than do the other apostles that we've already looked at in this study. So this morning, we're going to look at three of the four last apostles of, of the group that Jesus Christ chose. We're going to focus specifically on Judas Iscariot next Sunday morning. Now, I want to be clear, uh, and this is all introduction to this message. The introduction is a little long this morning, but I really want to make this point to you, and I want to take some time to do that. Of all the men that Jesus Christ called for disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, They all gave up something to follow Jesus Christ. And in fact, they all gave up all to follow Jesus Christ. When Peter spoke these words in Luke chapter 18 and verse 28, he said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. All the disciples were were there with him when he said that. Every disciple gave up something significant to them to follow Jesus Christ. They left houses or lands or family or friends or comforts or jobs or something to follow him. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that. All these men had other occupations. All indications were that they were all successful in the occupations and the careers they had chosen. And yet they gave up a lifetime of experience and training and all they'd accumulated in the process to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Throughout history, there have been those who have had successful careers, who who were financially set, uh, but who gave up all to follow the Lord to do some work that God called them to do. That is exactly what the disciples did. They surrendered everything to become followers of Jesus Christ. And all of them, except for Judas Iscariot, became heroic and valiant followers of the Lord. Now, we don't read that much about that, uh, that side of them in the Gospels. Uh, the very unique thing about the Word of God, and I'm sure you've noticed this as you've read through it, compared to all the other literature out there, God always gives the full picture. He never glosses over anything when he presents it. He gives every detail that we need to know. He doesn't try to make the people in the Bible look better. He just gives the facts about what they are. And so when we read about in God's word about those God's chosen to highlight, we see both the good and the bad in what they did. We see the successes, uh, what, made, what they did that made them admirable in serving God, but we also see their failures as well. We're given insight into their liabilities that God's servant brought to the table. And that is never more true than in the accounts that God gives us highlighting these disciples. When they did well, we see that, but when they messed up, we also see that. And if you haven't noticed, these disciples messed up quite a bit. (laughs) They messed up a lot. At times, these men were some of the weakest, most faithless men that you would ever come across, ever meet. And by now, I hope you realize why God presents them in that way. God does not want us thinking for a minute that it takes a superhuman person who has, all, has it all together to serve Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure we know that. He wants us to know for sure that those things are unnecessary qualifications in service. And so God does not present these guys as mythical-like heroes who had the strength and standing that no one else had. They were the exact opposite, as a matter of fact. 
They weren't prominent celebrities. They were ordinary men with ordinary frailties and ordinary weaknesses and ordinary passions. In fact, they were just like you and me. They were just like us. And God presents all of that to us so no believer can ever say that they are not qualified to serve Jesus Christ. If you are saved and if you're breathing, you qualify to serve Jesus Christ. Anything else that you are, anything else that you may have done are unnecessary details that really have no bearing whatsoever on our ability to serve Jesus Christ and to be Jesus Christ to our world. So what do we see as we look at these disciples? We see doubt. We see confusion. We see disbelief. We see men who are at times thinking way higher of themselves than they ought to think. We see men who speak when they should remain quiet and who remain quiet when they should be speaking. Sometimes they show confidence in their own strength. And sometimes, and actually much of the time, we see just how weak they really are. If you think about it, we see very few accounts in the Gospels of any disciple doing anything really extraordinary. Just think about that. We know they did some great works, but we have few accounts in the Bible describing those works. And the one time that we do have where we see a disciple do something extraordinary is when Peter walked on water. And that story ended by Peter losing faith and sinking in that water and Jesus Christ having to rescue him. The strength and the determination of those disciples is really not clearly seen until after Jesus Christ went to heaven. Once they receive the Holy Spirit's empowerment and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, we see see them acting differently, strong and courageous and performing miracles. They have a boldness after that that they did not evidence at all prior to that event. But even at that, it's mainly Peter and James and John and later Paul that we see who are the focus of those accounts. The rest of the disciples went to biblical obscurity. So let me ask you, what evidence do we have that these men did anything worthwhile when Jesus Christ went back to heaven? What evidence do we have at all that these guys did anything worthwhile when Jesus Christ left them? Well, take a minute and look around. There's your evidence. Your evidence is sitting here this morning. That's the evidence that what they did had an impact. This church exists because of the work of those men. Churches exist around the world and have for over 2,000 years because of the work of those men. The fact that people are still getting saved, the fact that churches are still thriving, the fact that new churches continue to spring up is a testament to the heroism and the faithfulness of those disciples. Every person saved since Jesus Christ left this earth can be traced back to them. Now, just think about that. Every person saved since Jesus Christ left this earth can be traced back to those 11 and 12 disciples. The rewards that they will receive and the honor they'll get at the judgment seat of Christ is mind-boggling when you consider the accomplishments of their faithfulness and their willingness, as I mentioned at the very outset, to surrender all. Folks, that is an unbe- that is a, a reminder once again to us that God's training and our willingness is an unbeatable combination. My willingness and God's training can't be beaten by anything else. It really takes nothing more than that to make a person a disciple of Jesus Christ. We may be as ordinary as vanilla ice cream, but if we are willing and if we accept his training and immerse ourselves in it, God can and will do amazing things through us. And I'm not using those words lightly. I'm saying to you, if you allow God to do it, he can do amazing things through you, through you and through me. He can do it. If we allow him to do it. Now, we communicated more than once to you in this study how that the faith of these disciples, although it wasn't always evident, was always a part of who they were. That faith that they had eventually stood the test of whatever might occur around them. 
even at their lowest, even when they were completely bewildered by what was occurring on around them, their faith was always there when it was all said and done. The best example of that, again, is found in John chapter 6. So go to John 6, if you would, this morning as we start. John 6, you remember now, is the feeding of the 5,000. That's the account that John gives us of that. Uh, Jesus commands his disciples to feed those 5,000. And after that occurred, many in that group continued to hang around. Maybe they were looking for more free food. I'm not sure. It was then that Jesus Christ preached another message to them, a message they found to be both shocking and offensive to them. Look at verse 32. John 6, 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Jesus Christ proclaims himself to be the true manna from heaven. Look at verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. You see, the Jews knew what he was saying. They knew exactly. People may miss it today, but those Jews knew exactly. When he said he he came down from heaven, what he was clearly saying was he lived where God lived. And that made him equal with God. That made himself God. And they knew what he was saying. Look at verse 48. Jesus Christ, in the face of that opposition, says, I am that bread of life. Jesus doesn't back down on that statement one bit, but actually reinforces what he says. And then look at verse 54. In verse 54, he begins making the case that he's going to give his flesh for the sins of the world. He says there, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Jesus Christ lets them know the kind of commitment that it will take to be his true follower. And that is when not only did his disciples, the people begin to uh, back away from him, but some of his followers began to back away as well. Look at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? He just told us we've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. How can we hear this? Who can maintain this? Who can understand this? Look at verse 66. Watch it now. From that time, from that point in time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They couldn't take it anymore. Those sayings were too hard. They couldn't figure it out. They thought he was asking too much. The commitment was too great. And so the requirements, because they were too extreme and they had to surrender too much, they simply said, we're not following anymore. We're going to back off. Dozens of those who heard him teach, dozens of those who began to follow him, turned away and didn't walk with him anymore. And that's when Jesus Christ turns to his 12 and asked the question, look at verse 67. Five words, will ye also go away? Jesus Christ says, they've all left. Is that your plan? Is that what you want to do? Now, please understand, these 12 disciples did not have a much clearer understanding of what Jesus Christ was saying than the rest of the crowd and those other disciples. It wasn't like they got what other people didn't get. They were just as confused, I'm sure, as the crowd was. I'm sure they had questions about what Jesus Christ said, just like those other followers. And if they were thinking in their heads, I can't do this anymore. Here's the perfect out. Jesus Christ said, are you going to go too? As though he opened the door and says, follow them if you want to. If you want to leave, now's the time. Peter speaks up. Look at verse 68. And I believe he speaks for the group when he says it. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. 
Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Lord, we don't understand a lot of what you're saying to us. We don't get what you're trying to tell us all the time. Or we don't get all these words you're speaking to us. We get confused by you sometimes, and your actions surely confuse us as well. Here's one thing we do know. Your words provide the path to eternal life. And there is no one else on earth who can do that. So against all odds, against all the opposition, 11 of those 12 stuck with him. And because of their firm, steadfast belief in his words regarding eternal life, it made it simply impossible for them to leave. They saw no other option but to continue to follow. No place else to go. Look at verse 69. He says, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. We are Sure, we're sure. They may have been faint at heart. The circumstances around them may have caught their attention sometimes. And the noise and the resistance of the crowd may have shaken their confidence. But they were convinced that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. And they knew that they would never find a better deal than what Jesus Christ offered, no matter where they went. They had found the best. They weren't going anywhere else. Folks, at the heart of our walk and our work for Jesus Christ must be an unshakable confidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that he will do exactly what he said he would do. That will take you through everything else. (laughs) Know who he is and believe what he says. Now, there are events that are going to occur in your life that are going to attack you and shake you. There are occurrences of the day that are going to concern you. They're going to attack your faith and make you question sometimes why you do what you do. Listen to me. Our response to all of those things must be one of full, complete, unchangeable faith in who Jesus Christ is and in what he has said. Because you see, it's not that the disciples weren't unaffected by the events around them. They were affected by it. Those events never got to the foundation of their faith. It may have shaken them on the surface, but their faith remains steadfast. The problem today is, and I guess it's just my opinion, but the problem today is that very few believers, or I should say many believers in our day, have a very limited personal connection to Jesus Christ. They are saved. They know Jesus Christ as Savior, but they've lost sight of that salvation, have not allowed him to do anything after salvation in their lives since they trusted him. They got saved and kind of put a stop on all of it. And so much so that when the winds of opposition blow, they're ready to cave. When things get difficult, they're ready to walk away. If we want to be Jesus Christ to our world, we better know him more intimately than we know any person on this earth. You better know him. That's why our conference in a couple of weeks has that theme that we may know him. That's the focus of that conference. And the reason for that is because if we want to be Jesus Christ to our world, we better know him. And not know anything else like we know him. And then as we take that knowledge and apply that knowledge, we walk in faith and we trust him in all things and never allow that faith to waver. Don't let the world, don't let the devil, don't let your flesh shake your faith. Keep your faith in him. Keep your faith in him. And if we'll do that, like the twelve, we'll be immune to whatever goes on around us. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this world is going crazy. Now, you may have missed that point, but it really is. It really is. And if you're trusting Jesus Christ, you're being attacked almost daily, either implied or directly, because of what you believe. You better hold on to your faith, or they're going to shake you. Because I'm going to tell you something else. You may not know this. I'll let you know. It's going to get worse. (laughs) It's not going to get better. 
You may hope, you know, you get a new administration in the White House and things are all going to change. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. The world is what it is and the flesh what is what it is and the devil is who he is. Just hold on to your faith in Jesus Christ and do the work he's called you to do and don't let any of this stuff shake you. You see, folks, if we maintain that faith and we maintain the work that he has called us to do, all the while we're doing that, we are saying to ourselves, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we'll be saying to ourselves, we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm going to tell you something. People who hold on to that will be unstoppable. That You will be unstoppable in your work for Jesus Christ. So, we want to look at three disciples this morning who followed that same pattern that I just gave to you. Three disciples who gave all to follow Jesus Christ. Now, they may be obscure in the information we find about them in Scripture. What we do know is this. They forsook all to follow the Lord. And that really is all we need to know about them. So, let's look at James, the son of Alphaeus, first. He's the ninth one listed. Go to Luke chapter 6, if you would. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke, Luke chapter 6 gives us the list of disciples from Luke's account. So look at verse 14. Luke chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, As Simon, whom he also called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus. So there's our man, James the son of Alphaeus. That's all you know about James. That's it. You know that he is James, the son of Alphaeus. Anything that he wrote, anything that he said that was anywhere near monumental is lost in the pages of history. We don't have a record of any of it. If he ever asked Jesus Christ a question, if he ever did anything notable that made him stand out from the group, it wasn't enough to be recorded in any of the Gospels. So what we know is James never achieved the sort of fame that any of the other disciples did, like James or Peter or the others. What we know about James, the son of Alphaeus, is that he was obscure. <laughs> That's what we know about him. James even had a common name. There are many Jameses in that society in that day. We have several Jameses in Scripture. You've got James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He became the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. We see in the book of Acts that James, the brother's, uh, Lord's half-brother, uh, was spokesman for the church, had a major role in the decisions that were made by the church. We also have James, the son of Zebedee. We talked about him early on, one of also of the Lord's disciples. He's the one who I believe wrote the book of James. So we have James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. We have James, the son of Zebedee. These guys stood out. All we know about James, the son of Alphaeus, is that he was James, the son of Alphaeus. That's all we know. I'll look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And look at verse 40. Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. So here we know something else about, not about him, but about his heritage. His mother's name was Mary. We also know he had a brother named Joseph, who must have also been a follower of Jesus Christ, although not a disciple in the same way that uh, James was. His mother was a devout follower, one of the brave women who appeared uh, after Jesus Christ died to uh, help bury him, uh, prepare the body for burial. So his family and his activities seem to be no more noteworthy than what James did himself. In fact, he is so unremarkable, get this, his nickname name is The Less. <laughs> How would you like to be known as James The Less? 
What a, what a great way to be known. Now, it could have referred to his height. Maybe he's a short man, like some folks in here that remain, unnamed, remain nameless. Uh, he may have been a short guy. Maybe he was one of the younger of the disciples. Maybe he was younger than his brother, and therefore he was called that. Most likely, though, he's called James the less because of his influence. He just didn't have the same influence as the other James, James the son of Zebedee. Uh, we've seen the influence that James had already as we study his life. It's likely that James drew the comparison that he was less in, in, the, in his background. He was less than James the son of Zebedee was. And James the son of Zebedee took center stage. It's also very possible James was a small, quiet, young person who stayed mostly in the background. Now, with all that said, those are his qualifications, and Jesus called him as a disciple. (laughs) Now, you look at that, and you think about that from the position of our society today, where celebrities are worshipped, and nothing of any value is done unless thousands of people know about it. We might see James, like like them, as insignificant in terms of their work for Jesus Christ. You may not have noticed, you live in the age of the Christian celebrity. There are names I could mention to you this morning that you would all would recognize because of their prominence in Christian circles. And we could be very easily fooled into believing that those are the ones who are getting all the work done for the Lord. And the rest of us are simply picking up whatever they might leave behind. And yet Jesus Christ chooses obscure, noteworthy people for a reason. Obscure, unnoteworthy man like James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, Go to Hebrews if you would. You were there a few minutes ago. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Matt read this for you this morning. I'm not going to read it for you again, but I want you to look down through those verses again from verse 33 to verse 38. I want you to notice, these folks suffered some amazing things for Jesus Christ. I mean, they went through some horrendous things to hold on to their faith and stand for Jesus Christ. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Think about being sawn in half. Wandering around with no clothes that you could actually uh, provide any shelter for you. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves. They all obtained a good report through faith. Listen to me. Look at those names and see if you can pick out anybody that you know. Now, there might be a few you recognize there from the description, but for the most part, you don't know any of who those people are. There's not one name listed there. Those folks suffered some amazing things for Jesus Christ, and you don't even know their names. You know why that is? Because only one needs to know their names. Only one needs to know. And he knows. He knows. Only one person needs to know who those people were, and he is well aware of who those people were. It doesn't matter, folks, who might know them and what they did. God knows exactly what they did, and God knows exactly what they suffered for his cause. And if he knows, it doesn't matter if anybody else knows. There's some possibility that James might have been the brother of Matthew, the publican. Also some possibility he might have been the cousin to Jesus Christ. Those things are never made clear in Scripture, and the reason is that a person's pedigree makes no difference at all when it comes to the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if your father was a great preacher, or a steel worker, or a coal miner, or a bum. It doesn't matter at all. None of that subtracts from your ability and your potential to be used by God. Those folks in Hebrews chapter 33, you have no idea where they, Hebrews chapter 11, rather, you have no idea where those folks came from. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. None of that adds to or subtracts from their potential to be used. Nothing makes, none of that stuff makes us any better or any worse in our efforts for Jesus Christ. Please hear me this morning. The only pedigree that matters in our service to Jesus Christ is if you're related to the king. <laughs> if you're related to him, it doesn't matter who else you know or don't know. 
Here's what David said in Psalm 16:6. I love this verse. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in goodly places. Yea, David says, I have a goodly heritage. I've got a goodly heritage. And he wasn't talking about Jesse. He wasn't talking about Obed. Those are just ordinary men. The heritage David was talking about was the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, being his inheritance. Because, you see, if he was connected to God by faith, he had a great heritage. My great-grandfather was an itinerant preacher by the name of Stephen Patrick. Anybody ever heard of Stephen Patrick? Didn't think so. (laughs) My grandfather was a steel worker at the Timken Company. My dad was an auto mechanic and later a school teacher. And very few people outside of family and some in this area would even know anything about them. And the fact that fact doesn't affect my, my usability to God in the least. Most people here may be known by some folks in this area. However, if you go outside of Stark County, most of you live in obscurity. You walk down the streets of Worcester or Mansfield, and nobody's going to know who you are. (laughs) Don't want to burst your bubble, but they're not. (laughs) They're not going to know you. You see, it doesn't matter. What matters is, what is your relationship to the king? How are you related to him? (laughs) Uh, do you know him, and does he know you? And if you have a, know him, and he knows you, as David says, you have a goodly heritage, and God can use you. God can use you. History would tell us that James went on to be a great preacher. And later he was either stoned to death, or beaten to death, or crucified like his Savior was. He made such an impact in his ministry that he was killed in order to silence him. Was he great by world standards? Not even a little. Nobody knew who he was. He was James the Less. But he was a preacher of the word of God. That was his only claim to fame. And God used him because James was willing to be used. And the lesson from James is this. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. Just make a name for Jesus Christ. Make your effort and your goal to make a name for Jesus Christ. And although few on earth may know who you are, may never know who you are, someday you're going to be honored by the only one who matters. (laughs) You'll be honored by him. All right. Go to Luke again. Luke chapter 6. And look at verse 15 again. Luke chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Matthew and Thomas... James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes. Simon called Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot. He's also listed in Mark chapter 3 and verse 18 as Simon the Canaanite. That word Canaanite doesn't refer to his lineage. That word means fervent or zealous. You remember when we began this study several weeks ago, we talked about Simon being a member of a political party called the Zealots, a well-known, widely feared outlaw sect at that time. The zealots hated the Romans and the Roman rule, and it was their goal to overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. Uh, they were extremists in every sense of the word. They interpreted the law literally, as did the Pharisees, but unlike the Pharisees, they refused to compromise their beliefs for political reasons. They were militant and violent and believed only God himself had the right to rule over Israel. And so they believed they were doing God's work by assassinating Roman soldiers and political leaders and anyone else who opposed them and opposed their thinking. You see, these zealots were waiting for the Messiah to come. He's going to lead them in overthrowing the Roman government and restoring the kingdom back to its former glory under Solomon. And they were ready to die for that cause. 
They believed that paying tribute to a pagan king was an act of treason against God. And they found widespread uh, acceptance among the people who were overwhelmed by the taxes they were paying. Uh, The zealots had a leader by the name of Judas the Galilean. He led a rampage of murder and plunder and destruction. He carried out guerrilla-like warfare against the Romans all through that society. And when Judas was later killed by the Romans, the zealot movement went underground. And the zealot movement, the acts of terror became more secretive and more selective. They formed a society within that group. It was a group of secret assassins called the Dagger Men. And they would sneak up behind Roman soldiers or politicians and stab them in the back, killing them, and then take off, and nobody knew who did it. They would suffer any kind of death for the cause they supported. They were zealous. They were zealous for all the wrong reasons, according to what history tells us, in all the wrong ways, but they were zealots. And somewhere along the way, Simon the Zealot became a believer in Jesus Christ and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, please understand, Jesus Christ was not the kind of Messiah Simon was waiting for. That's not who he wanted to see come. He wanted to see a military leader come. That's not who Jesus Christ was. He was not a military leader who was going to take the kingdom by force. In fact, Jesus Christ, early in his ministry, began to talk about how he was going to be killed by the very government that Simon was seeking to overthrow. So Jesus Christ was nothing at all like what Simon fought for and most likely killed for. So what do you learn from a man like Simon? Two lessons. And I love these lessons, folks. Please don't minimize these things this morning. The first lesson we learn from Simon is this. The life-changing power of Jesus Christ is like unlike anything else that exists. Amen, amen, and amen. <laughs> the life-changing power of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else that exists. It does not matter what a person is. It does not matter what a person has done. It does not matter how steeped in sin a person may be. Jesus Christ can change all of that. He has that kind of power. The power of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross of Calvary can meet any challenge ever met. You know the old song well. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And I don't think we even begin to comprehend the full extent of that truth. I don't think we can even get wrap our heads around what that really means. I don't think we can actually realize how powerful the blood of Jesus Christ actually is. The only way to get any glimpse of that at all is look at men like Simon the Zealot. Or look at a man like the Apostle Paul. Or look at a man like John Newton or John Bunyan, one of those guys, and realize what they were before they met Jesus Christ and realize what they became as the blood of Jesus Christ was applied. Listen to me. There is no person, there is no program, there is no prescription that can achieve the kind of change that the blood of Jesus Christ can achieve. just can't happen. Man's methods may create it initially. It may continue for a while. But the changes that anything man does... uh, Try to do only is temporary and ultimately is ineffective. But when Jesus Christ's blood is applied, when that blood is shed and taken as the payment for sin, when that blood is applied, you'll see something happen that will happen nowhere else. That change that occurs when salvation comes is genuine and complete and life-altering and permanent. Permanent change. Nothing else can do what the life-changing, soul-cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ can do. And by the way, just in case you're not aware of this, it works for anybody. It works for anybody. You may be here this morning, never trust the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You can do that this morning. The blood of Jesus Christ will save you. If you're watching this morning, have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, that blood can change you today and change you forever. It has that kind of power. 
Real change, and real change, real change comes, and real change stays when our hearts and lives are fully given over to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we allow Him to do whatever He needs to do to make us complete in the change that He wants to affect in our lives. You know what Jesus Christ wants from us this morning, folks? He wants surrender. He wants surrender. If you're struggling with some habit, or some sin, you may try man's programs, and they may keep you on track for a while. They may give you techniques or strategies to help, but that will not affect true change. True change comes when Jesus Christ is allowed into the picture and does his changing of that heart. Then that change occurs, and it occurs forever. You know what Simon shows us? Simon shows us that God can change anybody. No one has gone so far. No one is so steeped in sin that God can't change at all if a person allows him to do that. God's change is full and complete, both inside and out. God is still doing that today. He'll do it this morning if you'll let him. Here's the second lesson from, life, uh, from Simon's life. When it comes to serving Jesus Christ, listen to me, our past means absolutely nothing. Our past means absolutely nothing. Simon the assassin became a preacher of the word of God. <laughs> Paul, the murderer and the persecutor of the church, became the greatest apostle who ever lived. John Newton, the slave trader, became the author of Amazing Grace. John Bunyan, who is described as a man who had few equals, both for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God, he wrote the great book, Pilgrim's Progress. Put your name there. You might look back on your life and draw the conclusion that God could never use somebody like you. You may look back on your life and think about some of the things that you've done and determine that you've made yourself unusable to God because of the choices you've made. I want to tell you something. That is exactly what Satan wants you to think. That's exactly what he wants you to think. We have no way of knowing how many people who God has chosen, who God gifted in some way and prepared to serve him in some great way, but God worked his way into their life and started reminding them of their past, reminding them of some lingering sin, reminding them of some horrendous choice they made or lifestyle choice that they have been involved in and convinced them that while God might be able to use other people, he could never use them. And they put themselves on the shelf because they believed what Satan told them. I want to remind you something, folks. Satan's a liar and the father of it. He's lying to you. The only person who is unusable to God is the person who refuses to be used. The only person who is unusable to God is the person who refuses to be used. If you'll let him use you, he'll use you. He uses anybody. If you'll surrender to him, he'll use you. God uses the moment that we decide that we want to be used by him as the starting point. Everything that happens before that is irrelevant. (laughs) When I say, Lord, I might have all that stuff back there, but as of this moment, I want to serve you and only you. You know what God does? He forgets all that. It doesn't matter. In fact, he forgot all that the day you got saved. (laughs) You might remember that stuff. God has any recollection of it whatsoever. He forgot it all. And I want you to hear what God is saying this morning. And don't let Satan interfere. If you will be used by God, God will use you. Satan, Simon was a zealot. He was an assassin. He was a man given over to a satanic cause. But when he gave his heart to Jesus Christ, none of that mattered. It was all forgotten. Now, we don't know for sure, but all historical accounts point to Simon being killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Early in his life, he would have been killed for 
rebelling against the Roman government. But you know what Simon found? He found a more fruitful cause to fight for. He found the gospel of Jesus Christ to be much more fruitful than fighting against the Roman government. And God used him in such a great way that the enemies of the gospel saw the need for him to be taken out. Now, I can't say it any more simply, folks. If God can use him, God can use you. And any time you think you can't be used, just look up Simon's name and say, you know what? God used him. He can use me. All it takes for you is to turn your back on what you were and recognize who you are as a blood-washed child of God and surrender to the right cause, which is leading people to Jesus Christ. And God will use you because that's what God wants to do. God will use you because God wants to use you. All right, one more time. Back to Luke. Look at verse 15. Luke chapter 6, verse 15. Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. One more disciple we want to look at this morning before we wrap it up. Now, this man Judas, I know when you hear the name Judas, you obviously think of Judas Iscariot. And because we're familiar with him, we think that name Judas, we find that name Judas to be distasteful. That name Judas means Jehovah leads. Isn't that interesting? He was named Jehovah leads, a great name to carry. Now, Judas actually has three names. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3, he's also called Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus. So he had the name Judas, Libius, and Thaddeus. Probably Judas, a name given to him at birth, Libius and Thaddeus, most likely nicknames. And the meaning of both those names seemed to indicate that he was young and had a tender, childlike heart. So here we have James, uh, this one with his, or Judas rather, this one with his tender heart, hanging with a former assassin like Simon. <laughs> what a unique group of men God put together to be these disciples. One more indication that God equips all people with different traits and different abilities, all useful to the work of the Lord when God puts it all together and does his work through them. And I don't want to sound like a broken record here this morning, but Judas is just as obscure as James and Simon were. Judas is only recorded one time in the entire word of God, and it's in John chapter 14. I'd like you to turn there. Go to John chapter 14. The only time we have Judas speaking is here in John chapter 14. Verse 21. Jesus Christ speaks here. He's giving you his... his, uh, comments before his the cross and he says this he that hath my command verse 21 chapter 14 of john he that hath my commandments and keepeth them he it is that loveth me and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and i will love him and will manifest myself to him so there's jesus christ speaking now look at the next verse judas it says judas now not iscariot the other judas saith unto him not iscariot lord how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not under the world. Now, notice the tone of the question here. He's not confronting Jesus as Peter might have done. This question actually shows a humility and a meekness. He's essentially asking the Lord, Lord, how is it you're going to manifest yourself to a group of people like us, a group of misfits like us, and not show yourself to the whole world? The disciples knew that the message of Jesus Christ was a message for the entire world. They knew he came to reveal his plan of salvation to all of mankind. So this is an honest and heartfelt question. Why are you going to reveal yourself to us and not reveal yourself to the whole world? What does that tell me? That tells me Judas had a heart for the whole world. Judas had a heart for the whole world. 
Judas had a desire for all people to find Jesus Christ and follow him like the disciples had. Judas didn't want to see anybody miss out on what he had experienced by truly knowing Jesus Christ. He had a heart for the souls of people. And the question he asked is not asked to the Lord to put him on the spot or question the plan. Judas so wanted all the world to know his Savior, he simply wanted to know why Jesus Christ wouldn't manifest himself to them and show them the truth of what he was speaking. And Jesus Christ, who knows the heart of all people, he understood the motive when Judas asked the question. Look at Jesus Christ's answer in verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him and will come unto him and make our abode with him. Jesus Christ, Judas is thinking kingdom, you see. He's thinking about this manifestation of the kingdom as he should have. But his concept was that Jesus Christ was going to take over all the world, both materially and politically. And that's how Jesus would manifest himself to the world. Jesus Christ corrects that in verse 23. In essence, what he says is, I'm not going to take over the world externally. I'm not going to do what all these political folks want me to do. Not yet, at least. First of all, what Jesus Christ says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take over the hearts of those that I've come to. And one by one, I'm going to get a hold of their hearts. One by one, I'm going to reveal myself to their hearts. One by one, I'm going to show them who I am in their heart. And if a person loves me, they'll love my word. And if they keep my words, the Father and I will come to them and we will change their hearts. And then they will truly know me. Judas heard the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, uh, Judas heard the need for a changed heart. And when Jesus Christ left this earth, that is the work the disciples conducted. And the world was turned upside down as the hearts of people were turned to Jesus Christ. And because of who Judas was... And because of the message that resonated inside him, he became a follower. He became a disciple. You see, Judas was not chosen because of his personality. He was not chosen because of his ability. He was not chosen because of his notoriety. He was a chosen disciple because of his heart. That's why God chose him. He had a heart for people. He had a heart that wanted everybody he knew to meet the Savior. He wanted everybody he meet, met to know the Savior like he did. We are told by historical accounts that Judas was clubbed to death for his ministry. Clubbed to death. That's how he died for Jesus Christ. One of the most gruesome deaths anybody could ever go through. He had a heart for lost souls, and that heart for lost souls led him to die in that way. Now, he may have known that was coming. I'm assuming he did. He never allowed that to interfere with his work in the least. He just held on doing what God called him to do. Do you want to be not just a Christian? Do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to be Jesus Christ to your world? I'm going to tell you what it's going to take, folks. It's going to take a heart for lost souls. It's going to take a heart for caring about people who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's going to take a heart that puts everything else aside and makes that the focus. Because, you see, we can get distracted by so many things that it pushes out the real reason we're here. If you will have a heart for lost souls, God can use you and you will be a follower for him. My youth pastor used to tell us, be very, very careful in asking God for a burden for lost souls. Because if you ask God for a burden for lost souls, he will do whatever he needs to do to give it to you. And sometimes that's not a pleasant picture. 
But you see, if we don't ask God for a burden for lost souls, if our hearts aren't broken for the lost around us, we will never do the work that God has called us to do. You know what you need this morning? You know what I need this morning? I need a broken heart for lost souls. I need God to break my heart for the lost around me. I need God to give me such a burden for the lost that I can't help but tell other people about Jesus Christ. That is the only thing on my mind. You know how it is when you have a burden, don't you? Something's bothering you, something on your heart, something happens, you're, you're concerned about it. You tell everybody you can kick around of what happened to you or what that burden is. We need a burden for lost souls. I think that's what's been lost in the church today. Now, I'm not speaking about this church in particular. I'm speaking about the church in general. We come every Sunday morning and we hear the message and we go through all the routine. We walk out of this place and live our lives just like we did before we walked in. You know why that is? Because we won't allow God to break our hearts for lost souls. That's why. That's what I think. And so if we are serious about discipleship, if we are serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, if we are serious about doing the work God has called us to do, we must ask God sincerely to burden us for the lost. Our passion and the focus of our hearts must be only for the spiritual needs of those around us. And if we will pray for that burden, folks, I will guarantee you God will do whatever he has to do to give that to you. God will make you what this lost world needs to see. You say, I don't want to go through that. Well, you go through it here and rejoice up there. Or rejoice here and suffer the loss up there. One way or the other. One way or the other. Either I get the burden here and allow God to work through me here. Or I face him with the judgment and say, Lord, I didn't want to go through it. So I put it off. I put it off. Folks, when you want to see lost souls come to the Savior more than anything else in your life, God will use you. But first you've got to break your heart to make it happen. Heads bowed.